Welcome to the Life Purpose Podcast, the podcast that supports you in finding and embodying your purpose. My name is Paulisari, and I am your host. In this episode, I talk to Bill Plotkin. Bill is a death psychologist wilderness guide and founder of the Animus Valley Institute, and he has guided thousands of women and men on the journey of soul initiation. He is the author of Soulcraft, Nature and the Human Soul, Wild Mind, and most recently, The Journey of Soul Initiation, a field guide for visionaries, evolutionaries, and revolutionaries. In this conversation, we take a deep dive into the journey of soul initiation. We explore the five stages of descent to soul, and we also have a look at the practices that can help a person move through these stages. Moving through these stages essentially means finding one's soul purpose, as well as integrating and embodying it. This episode is unusually long, so I'm going to release it in two parts, one this week and the other one next week. Before we dive into the episode, I'd like to take a brief moment to say a few words about an online workshop that I will be offering soon. This workshop is for you if you have devoted a significant part of your life to deep spiritual practice, and if you're now in a place where you want to make a difference in the world but you do not know where to start. It is for you if you have a sense that something is calling to you, but you can't grasp exactly what it is. It seems like it could be several different things and it's difficult to choose. The aim of this workshop is to give you a better chance of getting to a place where you feel fully aligned with your calling, a place where you are 100% engaged in contributing towards a better world in a way that feels deeply meaningful to you. It's a 90-minute workshop in the Foundations of Purpose Discovery, and it's completely free. Some of the topics that we will cover in the workshop are the relationship between soul and purpose, soul encounter techniques, the three worlds of purpose to wake up, grow up, and show up, eight facets of purpose, the purpose octagon, and obstacles to purpose discovery and how to overcome them. If this sounds interesting, I encourage you to go to paulisari.com and sign up for the workshop. There are only a limited amount of spots available, so if you want to make sure to get a spot, it may be a good idea to sign up as soon as possible. The workshop is 90 minutes, it takes place on Zoom, and it's completely free. You can find more information and sign up at paulisari.com webinar or simply go to paulisari.com and find the webinar page in the menu. Okay, that's all I wanted to share about the workshop, so let's dive into my conversation with Bill Plotkin. I hope you'll enjoy it. Okay, so welcome to the Life Purpose podcast, Bill. Thank you, Pauli. Great to be with you today. Yeah, great to have you here. So, um... Yeah, so this podcast is very much centered around purpose, discovering purpose and embodying purpose. And uh, 
in order to have a discussion about that, it may be good to clarify some terms. People use the term purpose and also soul, which is a central concept here, uh, quite differently. So if yeah, how do you define purpose or soul purpose? Yeah, it's a good place to start. So let me start with the term soul and how I use it because it's um, very unconventional. Um, in fact, when I first describe how I use the word soul, you might think I've just kind of changed the topic from what people refer to as soul. But mm. um, I feel strongly that um, the concept of soul that I use is is one that we've needed for a long, long time and goes right to the heart of the both the uh, challenges in contemporary culture and also our opportunities. So with that little bit of preface, um, by soul, I mean a thing's unique ecological niche. Uh, everything has a soul, everything has a unique niche, a unique place in the greater web of life, including uh, humans, we humans. So, um, so that's why I initially said thing, because everything has a unique ecological niche. And um, so the human soul is the individual human soul is the place um, or the niche that a person was born to take in this lifetime. And that place, that niche can only be um, identified in terms of the greater earth community that um, and that in this sense, we're like everything else on earth, we humans are like everything else on earth in that we're born to uh, gift the world in a particular way, and not just gift the human village, but gift the world more generally. For most humans, we um, offer our gift to the world um, through what the, our roles in uh, the human community. But that's not necessarily the case. So, um, so yeah, that's what I mean by soul. It's a, you could also say our ultimate place in the world. Um, but I, what I like to emphasize and underline is that my concept of soul is ecological. It isn't, I mean, it's an ecological concept. It's not a psychological one or a spiritual one. And it's certainly not a religious one. Mm. Um, but the experience of discovering our, our soul's niche is a psycho-spiritual one for sure. And the way we consciously come to understand our soul is a psycho-spiritual experience. But soul itself for me is an ecological concept and, and that um, suggests right off the bat that um, I'm using the concept very differently. And again, some people might think, well, it's like my concept of soul has no relationship to how people usually use the word soul, but I'm quite confident that is entirely untrue. So just speaking uh, generally or connotatively, when we use the word soul, and we're not using it in the religious sense of what may leave like an object that made metaphysical thing that might leave the body when we die and so forth, um, but in everyday discourse, when we use the word soul, we're talking about something that references the deepest meaning 
of our life or the deepest purpose of our life or our deepest identity. And so if you think about it, um, our unique ecological niche, the, the place or the function that we were born to take in this lifetime in relationship to the larger Earth community, what could be more central to our identity or our purpose or the meaning of our lives? So um, in that sense, I feel that my concept of soul is very much in alignment with how we use the word. Um, but it has these added features that it connects ecology with psychology and also with the, um, the depths of the, the psyche. So that's what I mean by soul. Uh, a human soul would, again, the a person's unique ecological niche. Sometimes I say unique psycho-ecological niche, mm. um, which emphasizes the um, our human uh, capacity um, to um, be in relationship to the world through the qualities of our psyche. Um, and then, Polly, you also asked about purpose. Um, there's all kinds of different kinds of purpose. Um, and, and when people talk about purpose, they can mean quite a f number of different things. Yeah. Um, when it comes to human purpose, it seems that the vast majority of the time, like 99% of the time, um, when I hear people talk about purpose, they're talking about their social role, the one that gives them most meaning, or their vocational role, or their career, um, or maybe their religious faith. Um, and that's not at all uh, on the realm of what I mean by soul purpose. Mm. It seems that there's virtually nobody else out there um, who's explicitly talking about purpose the way I do. Um, I believe, at least in the contemporary societies or contemporary cultures, I believe the way I um, use the word soul is very resonant with how intact nature-based indigenous people would use that term if they have a term anything like it. So, okay, there's some introduction to yeah. my non-conventional uses of both purpose and soul. Mm. Yeah, and it sounds to me very much like soul and purpose are almost the same to you. Um, yeah. Would, Not would really. you say that? Um, no? Because, you know, we can still speak about our vocational purpose or our social yeah. purpose. Um, and the truth is that I mostly avoid using the word purpose because it just gets too confusing relative to uh, the essence of the work we do at Animus Valley Institute. So instead, I talk about our, um, I talk about soul and mythopoetic identity, which I'll get back to in a second here, mm -hmm. and our delivery system. Yeah. So for a person who's soul initiated, which is a, a quite a rare thing these days in contemporary societies, but for a person who is soul initiated, um, the way they understand their unique ecological niche is in terms of what I call mythopoetic identity. Now that's to say that the way a person comes to understand during the, the journey of soul initiation, the way a person comes to understand their soul 
is through metaphor, like um, in terms of like images that are dreamlike or archetypal or symbolic or mythic or poetic. So um, combining all those kinds of notions, my partner Janine Marie Haugen and I began several years ago to use the term mythopoetic identity. So for me, for example, um, those who've read my earlier books will know that on my first vision fast, I had my first soul encounter. And on that soul encounter, I had a uh, interaction with a yellow butterfly. And through that interaction, I was essentially told that my place in the world, my unique ecological niche was to help my people, help other humans um, weave cocoons of transformation, which is essentially the what the journey of soul initiation is. It's um, it's it's going through a transformational experience from a human adolescent to a true adult, initiated adult. So that's an example of a mythopoetic identity. In my case, um, that of weaving cocoons or being a cocoon weaver, and that's my metaphorical way of understanding. It's what I was given on my soul encounter as a way to understand what my unique ecological niche is. Um, and, but that doesn't tell you or me or anyone how I embody that or express my soul, my unique ecological niche. And so we started using quite a few years ago the phrase um, delivery system. So a delivery system is any social role, or it can even be a style, or it could be a vocation, or it can be a project, it could be an art, by which a person uh, carries to others uh, the gift of their soul. It's um, a way a person embodies their mythopoetic identity is through a delivery system. And if we called that a purpose, it would just confuse everybody. So rather than talk about, because let me say it this way, Polly, that um, um, once we have our, understand our soul, our, our ecological niche, and are embodying that through a delivery system, then we no longer have a social purpose or a vocational purpose the way people in our culture normally think of that. Um, let me say it kind of in the opposite way, that before soul initiation, there is no delivery system. There's just a social role mm. and or possibly a job um, and so forth that can contribute beautifully to society. That's entirely possible. It's relatively rare, but there's lots of people who are not soul initiated, who are doing beautiful things in the world, um, and they have a social purpose. So there's a there's a project that they're engaged in and committed to, but they don't have a delivery system because delivery systems are only for um, our, our our soul. You could say our soul purpose. Um, it's our offering a unique gift to the world through a delivery system, but that's not a purpose. That's a delivery system. Okay, I hope that I made that clear enough. It's it's a new idea for a lot of people. Yeah. 
No, it's um, it's something I also often emphasize that the delivery system is more it's an expression of your purpose, but it's not it isn't your purpose. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's funny you all answered to my two next questions already in in your answer to that one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. So how do we find purpose then? Like I guess I guess the question here is how how do we become soul initiated? Because that that would be the only way to to find our purpose in in your use of the word. Yes, in, in my use, my my odd unconventional use. So um, I guess Polly, the first thing to emphasize to answer that question is to say that. Um, in the framework that I use, my colleagues and I use at Animus Valley Institute, the stage of life makes all the difference in the world when it comes to almost anything that a person does. And um, in one of my earlier books titled um, Nature and the Human Soul, I outline a new developmental psychology that is nature-based and as well as soul-centric. And in that um, developmental model, there's eight stages of human life. Uh, The first two are stages of childhood, the next two adolescent, the third pair is adulthood, and the fourth elderhood. And it's um, my conclusion after 40 years now of looking at uh, human humans uh, through the lens of this developmental wheel I call it the echo, uh, echo soul-centric developmental wheel, that most, the vast majority of people in uh, contemporary industrialized cultures, what might be, have, have been called dominator societies, um, get stuck in the third of those eight stages, the, which is the early adolescence. And that's a radical thing to say, which is not uncommon for me. I'm, I end up saying lots of radical things. Um, but to take that in as just a statement, um, whether one believes it or not, that um, most humans never get past early adolescence. That's most humans in contemporary industrialized societies. No matter how long they live, they don't get past early adolescence, which is a stage um, in the healthy version of which I call the, the oasis um, the thespian at the oasis. That's um, a um, human archetype and an earth archetype. The thespian at the oasis, oasis being an earth archetype. Um, but probably the majority of people in early adolescence, which begins at puberty, aren't even in a healthy early adolescence. They're not in the oasis. They're in a what I call an egocentric, egocentric um, stage of life that I call um, this several versions, but the most common one is conforming and rebelling. That people are conforming to one peer group and rebelling against others, other groups, social groups. And that's much of the life in the Western world in my perspective. So um, the journey of soul initiation takes place during the next stage, which is late adolescence, which you won't be surprised to hear, I call the cocoon. Um, 
And so for most people, the way to the entrance to the journey of soul initiation, which is to say the entrance to the cocoon, is by completing the developmental tasks of the oasis, which is the earlier stage of early adolescence. And that often, often requires us to address the most unfinished tasks of the two stages of childhood. Because um, I've concluded that in the Western world, we as a society and as, and as families do not do a very good job supporting children in their um, developmental tasks and their personal growth through either stage of childhood. Um, not to mention the first stage of adolescence, which begins in the early teen years and, and then goes on through the rest of life. But maybe later, if you'd like, we can talk about those tasks um, that need to be addressed for a person to make it from the oasis, which is early adolescence, to the cocoon, which is late adolescence. So my new book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, is all about what happens in the cocoon, and um, I have a, a new model for what I call the descent to soul. Uh, the descent to soul is a particular spiritual experience, a descent or soul-oriented spiritual experience that um, happens during the journey of soul initiation. It can also happen after the journey, um, but it happens at least once. It could be several times during the journey of soul initiation. And that's the descent to soul is when if it goes well, we have a glimpse of our soul, of our unique ecological niche, which is to say we discover something about our mythopoetic identity. And um, there's, as I say, there's five phases to a descent to soul. And we could talk about them later if you'd like. But that's, that's an overview of my answer. The, the way someone becomes soul-initiated is first they complete the work of early adolescence of the oasis. They might even have to do some work to get from conforming and rebelling, the ecocentric stage, to the echocentric early adolescent stage of the oasis. And then mystery, or soul, um, decides that this human being is ready for the journey of soul initiation. And then, so it's the mystery that shifts our center of gravity from the early adolescent oasis to the late adolescent cocoon. And then we, we go through a um, complete, what has been called a dismemberment experience. The adolescent identity is essentially dissolves and we lose our faith that we could ever again identify ourselves in any central kind of way in terms of a social role or a vocation or a religious alignment, for example. So I better pause there, take a breath, and hand it back to you, Polly, because um, I'm always in danger of going on for quite a while to answer these questions. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so um, I'm guessing that on this map, many of our listeners will be in late adolescence um, and what so it sounded a little bit when you described it as if there it kind of almost automatically when when entering late adolescence um, 
that one enters into into an a process that will lead to soul initiation. But I'm guessing there's you know um, that process may not happen completely naturally, or or in case it does, it may take a very long while. And if we don't get support, and if we don't you know make some conscious choices on the way. So what when a person comes to late adolescence what what can they do in order to yeah more consciously move through that process of soul initiation Yeah great question um first i do believe that there are some people who get through late adolescence the cocoon on their own without any guidance and without any idea what what actually is going on for them but it's probably a very small fraction of yeah. people who enter the cocoon and get through it on their own. I think a lot of people get stuck there. So, for example, um, you know, I came of age in the '60s, so I was a member of the not just the baby boomers, but the hippie generation. Mm. And I believe a lot of us got into the cocoon, and a lot of us got there through the use of entheogens or psychedelics that um, that actually supported our maturation. Some of us got there through other um, spiritual disciplines that are, are ascent-oriented, mm. um, that are have to do with, you know, uh, the cultivation of the capacity for enlightenment and so on, which is the companion opposite of the descent to soul these two different spiritual realms that are partners but um, the descent half of spiritual spirituality has pretty much been completely lost for hundreds if not thousands of years in uh, the more industrialized cultures post-agricultural cultures so um, so yeah some people get through the cocoon on their own um, a very famous example that everybody knows is Carl Jung, who had no idea what was happening to him when his um, journey of soul initiation began, when he was somewhere around 34 years old. And his journey was not complete until he was 52 years old. Mm. So what's the math there? That's um, 16 years, something like, or 18 years in the cocoon. Um, I think in a healthy culture, the cocoon would be more typically three or four years. Mm -hmm. So um, so maybe the, the first thing, the hardest first step for people who enter the cocoon and who aren't being guided by what we call a soul initiation guide, that one of the hardest things is just to recognize what's happening to you. Because given our cultural context, the most likely thing a person would conclude is that they're losing their mind, that they're going crazy, that they're that everything is falling apart for them. And in some ways, all those things are true. But if you take it seriously, if you, that conclusion relative to our current cultural framework, you and or the people who love you would recommend you go see a psychologist or a psychiatrist to stop what's happening. And that probably tragically happens so often when people are having this essential spiritual experience that I call the descent to soul, 
Um, they freak out, the people around them freak out, and they are quote-unquote rescued from the experience, which is to say the experience is aborted and ended. And that probably happens quite a lot. And that's probably one, why, one reason why a lot of people who do get to the cocoon, relatively small number uh, or percentage of people, get stuck there, get stuck in the cocoon. It may be that many of us hippies um, got stuck in the cocoon because they didn't have guidance. Yeah. Um, so if you do have some guidance, either you're either either from an, an inner guide, like Carl Jung had five or six different inner guides who were absolutely brilliant and mm-hmm. totally independent and, and autonomous of his ego, of his conscious self. So you might have inner guides, um, if you can locate them and trust them, or you might have a guide simply in the form of a book, like my new book, Journey of Soul Initiation, is meant to be in part um, or very much. It's, I call it a field guide. It's really a field guide to the descent of soul. Um, and you may have um, the good fortune of meeting a, um, a person trained as a soul initiation guide, which is the, the kinds of people in the contemporary culture that we call spiritual guides, virtually none of them have any training whatsoever in the descent of soul and wouldn't recognize it if it was happening for them or anybody else. Mm. Um, And that's a problem in our contemporary spirituality, a really big problem. Um, And so that's, this is a lot of what we have been doing at Animus Valley Institute. It's been 40 years now. Um, We've been developing a Western contemporary nature-based approach to the journey of soul initiation, including the descent to soul. And it's not, our work is not in any way based on indigenous cultures, Um, partly because um, if the journey of soul initiation is about anything, it's about discovering and embodying our deepest authenticity. So it wouldn't make any sense to copy any other tradition and finding our way to do this for ourselves. Um, so most of what we do, most of our practices are drawn from Western spiritual or mystical traditions. Many of them we've made up on our own. Um, and um, so, yeah, I'd say I'm going back to your question was, what can a person do if they find themselves in the cocoon? Because I'm going to take your word for it, Polly, that you're probably correct that many, if not most of our listeners today are in the cocoon, that they've gone through the passage from early adolescence, the oasis, to what I call a cocoon. And that passage is the one I call confirmation. So your listeners, um, our listeners here today could ask themselves, have I gone through confirmation? And here's what I mean by it. Again, this is the passage from what I call the oasis to the cocoon. Um, at some point in our healthy early adolescence, Um, we have created a persona, a social presence that is fully authentic and accepted in at least one peer group, which is to say that we have the capacity to um, be ourselves in a real way with another group of humans and to be accepted for that by those humans. I don't know if our listeners today... would think, well, that sounds pretty easy. Um, 
I know many people say that's really very difficult, and I would say it's extremely difficult in the contemporary world because the emphasis is so much on fitting in, on conformity. Um, And so people end up having trouble with the developmental tasks of early adolescence. But when they do well, a person gets to the point where they feel like, I could do this the rest of my life with my hands tied behind my back. I, I know how to um, walk into a room and have people be glad to see me and I could be totally real and I'm not trying to conform to their fashion or anybody else's. I can just be me. And when a person reaches that point, um, it's like mystery confirms them. You don't need a human elder or adult to do it. Mystery confirms them. And essentially mystery is saying, Congratulations, you have created an authentic social presence in the world. Um, You've created, uh, you've learned how to do that kind of thing. And um, and now we're moving you on, we're confirming, in the second sense, we're confirming that you're ready for the journey of soul initiation. And what's going to happen during this passage of confirmation is that you're It's going to be, in many ways, the worst time in your life, the worst thing that could possibly have happened to you. Because, as I like to say, every healthy stage of life is the best stage to be in. Early adolescence, the oasis, a healthy early adolescence is great. I mean, Mm. um, we're, we're exploring our sexuality. We're exploring different styles, our music uh, our way to be in the world, our relationship to, to the larger Earth community—it's—it's um, it's very playful. We're developing our imaginations in a healthy early adolescence, mm. which is a big part of what early adolescence is for. And then we're when our life—I mean, get this—our life has been all about our social life. And that confirmation, we realize that we are essentially being thrown out of the village, out of the oasis, out of our peer group, to go into the mysteries of the world and of the psyche to explore something that um, we didn't really know existed beforehand. So the analogy is the caterpillar, who, which is an adolescent version of, of moths and butterflies. And the caterpillar... Um, has gone through transformations of its own. um, The caterpillar goes through these, a series of skin sheddings that biologists call moltings, where the caterpillar is kind of like a snake, loses its skin, sheds its skin, and grows a somewhat larger skin. And when that happens for a caterpillar, it was a caterpillar before the molting, and it's a caterpillar after the molting, but it's a different kind of caterpillar. It's like, Changing for humans is like changing our social scene or our job um, or our romance or whatnot, our religious or spiritual discipline. Um, and that those are profound experience for, experiences for human adolescence. But they're, it's all caterpillar on both sides. Mm. Um, when we enter, uh, go through confirmation and enter the cocoon, well, think about a caterpillar. What happens inside the cocoon, or in the case of um, butterflies, the chrysalis, is that the caterpillar body literally dissolves. It's the end end of caterpillar life. And for a human, what that corresponds to 
is the sense that we could ever identify ourselves or gather any greater meaning in our life through any kind of change in relationships, social circle, or job, or career, or artistic project, um, ends. And um, we don't know if the caterpillar in the cocoon has ever imagined flight, but that's what starts happening, that the caterpillar begins to imagine flight. And for humans, that's the encounter with soul when we have our first image of our mythopoetic identity. And what happens for a caterpillar is, is um, the, these specialized cells in the caterpillar's body called imaginal cells that have been imagining flight start reconstructing the, um, that caterpillar soup into the, a body of a butterfly, which is a very, very different body. And what's happening for humans at that phase of the journey is um, the encounter with our mythopoetic identity, that's the soul encounter, um, begins to shapeshift our egos. That's, uh, that's what changes for humans, not our bodies so much during the journey of soul initiation, but our egos are... And I use ego and that term, again, unconventionally, somewhat. I don't mean what ascent-oriented spiritual people think of as what we have to get rid of, um, but rather, the, uh, as more of a psychologist, I think of ego as something that makes us human. That an ego, I simply mean our capacity for self-consciousness, our capacity for conscious self-awareness. One cannot be human without that. So the problem in the world, including spiritual problem, is not egos, but immature egos, namely egocentric egos, egos that think that they're the center of the individual psychic life or the center of social life. That's the problem. And, that, and the solution is not getting rid of the ego, but maturing it. And that's a big part of the work we do at Animus is helping the, the ego mature. Okay, once again, I should pause there and, and uh, hand it back to you, Polly. Hi, sorry for interrupting. I would just like to take a brief moment to share a bit about what I do as a purpose guide. So are you a person who has devoted a significant part of your life to deep spiritual practice and who now wants to make a difference in the world, but who doesn't really know where to start? Do you have a sense that something is calling to you, but you can't grasp exactly what it is? It seems like it could be several different things and it's difficult to choose. What you would like is to get to a place where you feel fully aligned with your calling. A place where you are 100% engaged in contributing towards a better world in a way that feels deeply meaningful to you. So my solution to this dilemma would be to help you find your purpose. Because when you have that clarity about why you're here, why you're alive in this time and place, it's so much easier to choose. And when it's easier to choose, it's easier to get engaged in what you're doing without constant doubts about whether what you're doing is the right thing. So how do we do that? 
how do I help you get clear about your purpose? It's a process that is very much about connecting you to your soul, because your soul, the deepest part of yourself, is the part that knows your purpose. So the whole program, the Purpose Discovery Program, is very much centered around helping you get closer to your soul and to get information from your soul about your purpose and the different aspects of your purpose. We divide purpose into eight different facets, vision, powers, values, essence, giveaway, task, message and delivery system. And through different kinds of practices, you will gradually more and more clarify each of these throughout the process. Towards the end of the process, you're likely to have a very good soul-level understanding about why you're here. If this sounds interesting for you, you can book a free introductory session. It doesn't cost you anything, just a little bit of your time. We'll have a chat and we'll see if the program is the right fit for you and if you and I are a good fit to work on this together. So if you feel called, I really want to encourage you to go to my website and find the contact page and book a free session. Okay, let's get back to the interview. Thanks for listening. Yeah, no, I'm just trying to um, get clear about what... Well, it still isn't actually completely clear to me what to do in, to, in the cocoon. Um, so, yeah, can you say a little bit more about that? When one is like firmly established in the cocoon and knows that one is there, what is the way to get through that part of the process? Yeah, you're right, Polly. I haven't said too much um, in any detail about that yet, and... I have um, at least two or three books that try to answer that question. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's probably not something that can easily be explained in a couple of minutes, but we can at least say something. Yeah, but I'll give it a, a shot here. Um, early in the cocoon, um, we're just adjusting to this this massive change in our center of gravity um, where we're um, about to head down into the mysteries of the psyche the human psyche and the world psyche, which is to say the world community, the earth community. Um, and so in my book, Soulcraft, I talk about um, a number of practices that come under the heading of leaving home, that of um, practices that help us say goodbye to the early adolescent identity, mm. uh, ways to separate ourselves from it. And um, part of that is to separate ourselves from everyday social village life. Mm. Um, that the conversations we had been having before the passage of confirmation are, you know, about socially oriented things, entertainment, um, recreational things, um, probably politics. Not that we ever fully stop talking about politics. Um, and... Um, but so one of the first things for the, the new person in the cocoon, which I call the wanderer, the archetype of the wanderer, the wanderer um, separates themselves as much as possible from everyday social life. And in a contemporary world, that can be really hard for people, especially if we have um, prepubescent children at home or we're taking care 
of um, elderly parents or we have a job that's a nine to five job. Um, so in a healthy culture, one goes through the cocoon in their late teens, early 20s, um, before they have family obligations and so on. But for many people who get to the cocoon in contemporary world, they are commonly in their 30s, 40s, or even 50s or later. Um, so it can be challenging, but there are ways to do it. And I talk about that in, um, in Soul Craft, Nature of the Human Soul, and the new book, Journey of Soul Initiation, ways uh, to support you in leaving home. Um, there's also a lot of psycho-spiritual preparation work to catch up on before your first descent to soul. And so I'm talking about people who are already in the cocoon, mm-hmm. but haven't had their first descent yet. Um, and um, my book, Wild Mind, is the one that goes into this in greatest detail. Um, briefly, um, it involves cultivating what I call the four facets of wholeness. And I map those onto the universal um, template of the four cardinal directions or the four seasons for places in the world that have four seasons and are the four times of day. Those are basically the same template, those three. And what I've done is um, mapped these four facets of wholeness, which I describe in terms of sets of archetypes, human archetypes. And the idea, Polly, is that we're each born um, with these four sets of capacities or resources. Um, Mm. But we need help as children and adolescents to cultivate them. Otherwise, we really don't have access to those resources. Um, And I can just tell you the names of them. Maybe that will give our listeners a sense of what they're about. But again, this is in the book, Wild Mind. There's um, in the North, the North, sorry, in the North is the nurturing generative adult. Mm. In the East, there's the innocent sage, which is a bit paradoxical because the East facet of wholeness is both innocent and wise. Mm. And and the East specializes in paradox, so it's not surprising that there's a paradox in its name. And the South facet of Honus is what I call the wild indigenous one, because each of us has a, a type of indigeneity, even if our, our um, people of our ethnic background have lost our connection with the land, there's a part of our psyches that still recognizes itself in kinship with all the rest of the world. And this um, wild indigenous, indigenous one is also the one who celebrates every emotion. There is not such thing, there is no such thing to the wild indigenous one of a toxic emotion. Every emotion, including shame, every emotion, including shame, is has great value. The example, because that's the one everybody would say, there couldn't be any value in that, but that's entirely untrue. Mm. Um, when we get stuck in our woundedness, shame is a big problem, but from our wholeness, and the wild indigenous one is one facet of wholeness, um, even shame is uh, a treasure. Okay, the west facet of wholeness is what I call the dark muse beloved, the inner beloved. Um, and this is the one 
is also the guide to soul. This is the inner guide that takes us on the journey of soul initiation, especially if we don't have an outer guide as well. So, okay, so cultivating our wholeness, which I use uh, the shorthand borrowed from Gene Houston of holding, just the word holding with a W in front. Mm. Uh, holding is uh, an essential preparatory activity uh, in early in the cocoon because most contemporary p- people who get reach the cocoon haven't done enough holding of those four facets. Um, and then there's something else, another major piece of preparation is what I call self-healing. Now the word self has, is a capital S because self with a capital S is the, you might say, the combination of those four facets of wholeness. That those, mm. what they're facets of is the self. And that's what we're cultivating is the self. And self-healing is when we're able to heal our own woundedness using the resources of the self, of the four facets of wholeness. And self-healing goes way deeper and lasts much longer than being healed by someone else, like a psychotherapist. I'm not trying to put psychotherapists out of a job. I myself was a psychotherapist for about 25 years. And um, in our contemporary world that is so wounded and so traumatized, we need a lot of really talented psychotherapists. I'm, I'm sorry to have to say that I, I believe that most psychotherapists are probably not doing a great job because, not their fault because of their training, but a lot of them are doing a great job. Um, and if, we can't, if we're not yet capable of self-healing, then a, a, a talented uh, psychotherapist is a godsend. Yeah. But at some point, we have to learn to heal ourselves. And that's a really important preparation for the descent to soul. Hmm. Okay, so that gives you a, a few ideas. And then um, when your descent begins to happen, your first descent, that's when you start noticing your, your identity is fragmenting and crumbling. And you're starting to feel very lost. Um, and there's... Two of the things that happen early on as the descent begins are what I call, and other people have called, the crisis and the call. Mm. So at the beginning of the descent, there's always some falling apart of a person's life. Their, their relationship might run into great difficulties, their primary relationship. Um, they might lose their job. Um, they might feel alienated from their friends. They might be, begin to begin, sorry, to, to doubt their own sanity. Um, they might get very anxious, go into a depression, and so forth. Uh, this is a great crisis, and there's always a crisis at the beginning of, of a descent, especially the first descent. But simultaneously, there's a call, a, a mystical call, a feeling of longing that we're being pulled down toward some um, unspeakable uh, treasure of, that's uh, mysterious and mystical in some sense. It's, it's like falling in love in a way we've never fallen in love with before with a human being, another human being. It's something deeper than that. It's, it's actually a love affair with the soul. 
It's the soul that begins to call us and to um, encourage us and to uh, offer a, a kind of promise um, that we never knew could have existed. And so one of the kinds of practices that, that Soul Initiation guides, like um, what we do at Animus Valley Institute, is when a person who's in the cocoon and we're working with them and they begin their descent, we help them with practices that actually deepen their crisis, that make it even bigger. And we help them with practices um, that uh, make the call even stronger. So, for example, we might invite them to write love letters or to sing, to compose and sing love songs to the soul to, uh, and to romance the world. There's a whole set of practices mm. under the category for us of romancing the world. Um, and this deepens the second phase of the descent, which the first one is the preparation, and the second phase is what we call dissolution. And we name it because um, using the caterpillar analogy, the caterpillar body dissolves. What dissolves for the human in this second phase of the descent is the adolescent identity. It just crumbles. And um, as guides, we want to help that happen. And sometimes the people we're guiding look at us and think, we're crazy and or that we're um, homicidal <laughs> yeah. because um, we're helping them go through this experience which is decidedly not therapeutic that's why I say that even though many of the animus guides many of us are psychotherapists or have been trained as psychotherapists we are not acting as therapists when we're guiding the descent in some ways we're the opposite that we're going to help the person actually, in effect, decrease their um, social viability, their adaptation to a job or a relationship or a social life. Mm. Um, okay, Polly, I hope that begins to get a sense of there's a lot of practices and approaches that we use in the cocoon. And this new book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, uh, lists uh, many of them that aren't in my earlier books um, and then just reminds people of what are in the earlier ones. Okay, back to you. Yeah, that's great. Um, so as I understand it, or as it, yeah, it says in the book, there's five phases uh, of the descent to soul, preparation, dissolution, soul encounter, metamorphosis, and en enactment. So you've spoken about preparation and dissolution so far, but let's let's follow the whole chain here to its to its end. So what happens next? It's soul encounter. Um, yeah, good. Yeah, that's a good place to go. Um, let me remind our listeners that we have two analogies so far that you can follow along here using them. One is what happens for the caterpillar. Um, in the cocoon and the other one um, is um, oh yeah what I call Soul Canyon the image of Soul Canyon so here in uh, the southwest uh, of North America uh, you know we have these um, red rock canyons with sheer walls like the Grand Canyon everybody's seen images of the Grand Canyon and 
So you can imagine that you're walking along um, a flat expanse of land, what here in the Southwest we call a mesa, which is Spanish for table. And that's, and you're heading towards the rim of the canyon. And um, so that corresponds to the preparation phase. And then when you get to the rim and you feel this immense gravitational tug downward, which is the call of the soul, and you start to, to fall into the canyon, that's the dissolution phase down into the canyon. And then at, what happens at the bottom of the canyon is your actual encounter with soul, your, your glimpse of mythopoetic identity. And that, that can take many different forms. Maybe we'll talk about that um, later, if you'd like, Polly, the forms mm-hmm. that that soul encounter takes. Yeah. Um, and then when we're climbing up the uh, opposite wall of the canyon, that's the phase of metamorphosis. At least that's how we pronounce it here in the U.S. Metamorphosis, which is the shape-shifting of the ego. Um from an adolescent ego to an adult ego. And then when we get to the top, to the tableland on the other side and start walking back towards the village and our the rest of our lives, um, is the enactment phase, um, which is where even before we've identified or developed a delivery system, we start acting in the world uh, as or from the place of our mythopoetic identity. And that's an essential phase before we're even ready to choose a delivery system. So there's the Soul Canyon image, those five um, phases. And the cocoon, uh, sorry, the caterpillar image is uh, preparation is really all of the caterpillar life. And the dissolution, or you might say, a better way to say it is preparation is when the caterpillar is weaving its cocoon. Mm. Or if it's a butterfly caterpillar, its body is turning into a chrysalis, which is essentially a cocoon. Mm. Um, And the dissolution phase is once the cocoon is sealed up, then the caterpillar body dissolves, the human ego dissolves. Mm. And then in the soul encounter phase, for the caterpillar, the imaginal cells which are imagining flight, they actually, biologists call them imaginal cells because the adult butterfly or moth, um, the biological term for them is the imago. That's what biologists call them, the imago, I-M-A-G-O. And so the cells that have the job of taking the recyclable soup material of the caterpillar, of a former caterpillar, and reconstructing it into a butterfly body those are the imaginal cells. Mm. Um, and as the butterfly body is forming, that's metamorphosis. And for the human, it's the ego is being reshaped. And there's a set of practices we use to help that happen. And, um, and of course, there's a set of practices to help soul encounter happen. And then the fifth phase um, for the butterfly is after it has opened its cocoon and has stepped out before it can fly the butterfly or the moth it just hangs out out, just outside the cocoon and breathes and is pumping uh, fluid blood into its wings and is literally stretching its wings that's where we get that metaphor 
and preparing itself to fly one day. And that's the corresponds to the enactment phase. And once the butterfly flies, that's an adult butterfly who's made it to the early adulthood, which in the human I call the the apprentice at the wellspring. And that's when we identify and uh, study and cultivate a delivery system. Mm. Yeah. So now we have an overview of the whole of everything that happens in in the cocoon and during the descent to soul. Um, so, and we've talked a little bit more about preparation and dissolution. So let's dive into soul encounter a little bit more. And you said their soul encounter can take different forms. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, for some people, a soul encounter takes the form of a an interaction with one or more beings of the um, other than human world while we're awake. Some interaction, a, a mystical interaction with some um, other than human being. Um, so that was the case for my first soul encounter in which um, it was during a vision fast, which is not necessary for soul encounter. I should say that up front, but it is one of the um, uh, sacred technologies found in cultures all over the world, including our Western cultures that have been used um, to evoke uh, a vision or a soul encounter. So it was on my first vision fast um, at treeline, 11,500 feet in the Colorado Rocky Mountains, um, on a four-day fast. It was on the fourth day of my fast. I had been meditating upon a spruce tree on the edge of a lake that I was just maybe 20 meters from, and also watching a um, community of little mammals called pikas, but you know, smaller than a rabbit, um, gathering food for the coming winter, because this was in, in the early fall. And um, the spruce tree, um, which had become a couple of days earlier for me, had become for me a monk. It was very clearly a something like a Buddhist monk. Mm. Uh, Buddhism had been one of my spiritual practices at that time, still is in some ways. Um, the, the monk made a gesture with his left hand uh, and pointed to another tree to his left. And I looked, I followed his gesture and saw a um, yellow butterfly flying in my direction. And it, it took a while to get to me, but it came to me and actually brushed my left, um, the left side of my face with its wing as it went by. And it just said two words, which I heard in English my imagination allowed me to hear in English, which was cocoon weaver. So um, that's an example of, um, I guess I should say that I just thought at first, in the first few seconds, I thought that was mildly interesting, but the spruce tree and the, and the pikas were actually more interesting to me. Mm. Um, but maybe after 10 or 20 seconds, uh, 
something in me realized that I had just been shown my mythopoetic identity. And so the tears started flowing at that time. And I had no idea what it meant, no idea whatsoever, but I knew I had just been shown what I was born to do in this lifetime. Okay, so that's an example of a soul encounter that is an interaction with a creature. Um, and other soul encounters come through dreams, through through big dreams. Um, and um, others come through uh, waking visions. Um, so Carl Jung, for example, his first soul encounter was... Um, he was at home, uh, minding his own business, but there was a really weird atmosphere in his house and everybody in the house, his children and his wife and, and the maids and everybody was feeling a little bit crazy. And some of the people in the house saw what they thought were ghosts going through the house. And then the front doorbell, this is in Switzerland, in 1916, started ringing furiously. They weren't electric doorbells then, they were actually physical bells. And Jung was looking outside, his, looking through his window, and he saw the doorbell physically going nuts. Yeah. And, and nobody was out there ringing it. And then there were a, a collection of voices that he heard. And it was um, human voices, and they said, we are the dead coming back from Jerusalem, coming back from Jerusalem where we did not find what we were looking for. And they were crowding into his house and demanding that he, that he answered their questions. <laughs> and he spent the next several days um, writing answers to their questions, which were questions like, what is God? What has happened to God? What is death? And, uh, quite a note. What is man? Which, you know, this is 1916. Mm. So now they might have asked, what is what is a human? Yeah. Um, and he wrote uh, what he called the Seven Sermons to the Dead. And so this was a soul encounter in which he was placed in his mythopoetic identity and uh, and kind of forced by his soul or by mystery to embody that place. And it was the place of someone who has a um, very open and intimate relationship with the dead, with the ancestors, with literally human dead, mm -hmm. and uh, the relationship between the dead and the unconscious. And so this is how Jung first became Jung, is through this encounter with the dead. So that's um, one example. An example from Joanna Macy, our beloved uh, earth elder, eco-philosopher, um, student of Buddhism, systems theory, and uh, social environmental activist. Uh, her second, I'll just mention her second soul encounter was uh, a vision that she had, um, which was evoked through um, her beginning meditation, Buddhist meditation discipline, which really, which created a crisis for her early adolescent identity. And um, she um, uh, had a vision of 
a bridge, a stone bridge between the thought worlds of the East, like the Buddhist thought world, and the thought worlds of the West. And she had this very poignant, dramatic image of this bridge. And she realized that she would be one stone in that bridge. And that that was what she was born to do, to to bridge those two worlds in both directions, by the way, to support the East through gifts from the West and vice versa. So, um, yeah, those are some examples of soul encounters. Yeah, great. Thank you for listening to this episode. The second part of the conversation will be available in about a week from now. In that part we talk, among other things, about soul encounter techniques, sacred wounds, and about the last two stages of the journey of descent to soul, metamorphosis and enactment. If you're interested in the free webinar that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you're warmly invited to go to my website and sign up for it. You can find it at paulisari.com webinar or simply go to paulisari.com and find the webinar page in the menu. I really recommend signing up soon if you want to make sure to get a spot, since there are only a limited amount of spots available. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Have a great week and I'll talk to you soon.